I was at the park with Pearl and I was thinking the, I'm having some mild contractions and it was a beautiful day and I came home and I called my mom and said, it, you should probably plan on coming in the morning. The contractions went from seven minutes to three minutes within like a couple contractions. And as I'm calling, I'm telling them information, and that information is changing as I'm talking on the phone. And all of a sudden, Annie's on all fours on the ground. And it was at that point that actually Annie said that, those are the words I'll never forget. She said, it's happening. And I felt <laughs> the room kind of swell with this pressure of like almost like the air had changed. I, I kept saying, my hospital, my doctor is in Indianapolis. Yes. <laughs> and they're like, She's not going to make it to Indianapolis. These are my friends, Matt and Annie, and they live in a desert. And they wheel Annie out, and they had opened up what essentially was a closet with all the stuff in the air. They didn't put us in a regular ER bed, which was still to me to this day strange, because what she ended up was on like a, a tiny exam table that didn't have stirrups or anything. And it was in a closet where they just had loose materials, books, stacks, all this stuff. And the doctor maybe said one or two words to us. He looked terrified. I have an older woman pulling on my shirt, asking me over and again for insurance information as we are putting Annie up and bending her legs back so she could deliver because she is ready to deliver. It felt like 10 minutes tops once we were in that weird closet. <laughs> we were in the closet and I was screaming at them. <laughs> yes, yeah, she's screaming and I'm giving instructions and the doctor is just sitting there kind of praying. If you lived here, you might not know you live in a desert until you decide to get pregnant. Suddenly, your pleasant small town experience is spoiled. Now you have to find a maternal care provider far from where you live and somehow get yourself to your appointments regularly because this baby is not going to wait. This is what it's like to live in an OB desert. It's a reality that is all too common in the United States, which leads all industrialized countries in maternal and infant mortality. It seems like every year lately we see closures of maternity wards outpacing openings in rural areas. And the women who lose out as a result often have more specialized health care needs than any remaining hospitals or clinics are equipped to handle. There was a the smell of the pressure of the liability in that room. We're talking to women near and far this season about how living in rural America affects their health. OB deserts affect millions of women across the country, most of whom live in rural areas. What can we do in a nation that leads in innovation to address this shameful problem? Today, we'll look at a common sense solution to this complex issue. This is Angels in a Desert on Middle of Everywhere sharing big stories from the small places we call home. Aw, that's cute. <laughs> All right, so how have the glucose readings been? Uh, high. 
Uh, they're back up to like averaging around 180, 190. Last November, I got to sit in on a pregnant patient's regular weekly checkup with one of her care providers in the rural Indiana town of Crawfordsville. I don't know if it would be cramping, but I am very uncomfortable. And the provider, in this case, is a man who has never worn a lab coat, doesn't have an MD, and has a background in firefighting. Do you have a belly band? No. Look at a belly band. Okay. They sell them at Walmart. You can get them off of... The clinic we sat in doesn't look like what you'd expect either. It's in the dining room of a historic two-story home. The original cabinetry lined one wall, the wood floors squeak, and paisley patterned curtains line the tops of the windows. Darren, the firefighter turned care provider, has a white horseshoe mustache and close-cropped hairstyle. He wears a black polo shirt that reads Crawfordsville Fire Department on it. Her pregnancy was very complicated. Yes. This pregnancy's really been kind of straight, hot, and normal. RDF or whatever, the restrictive growth syndrome. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean that developmentally or size-wise it's going to make that much of a difference. Listening in on their conversation, I realized that Darren was providing something that I hadn't considered to be a part of medical maternal care. He was providing reassurance. Didn't they tell you they thought we'd be lucky to get to 31, 32? And now we're saying solidly 37. Um, I'm used to the brunt of doctors telling me that I'm not doing it right, you know what I mean? Like. Um, but yeah, he, he really upset me. But the, the so you might have guessed that today's story is largely about a man, which might surprise you, but men are often a huge part of the maternal care equation. Darren Foreman heads up a program in Crawfordsville, Indiana, called Project Swaddle, where he gets to spend all day talking to moms about pregnancy, nursing, and baby care. And it's literally all day, as I quickly witnessed when riding in the car with him to his next visit. I have what I call the baby phone. It's on 24-7. This is not your phone. It is not my phone. It is a a city-owned phone that is password protected. You know, we protect the, the health information. That phone is answered 24-7, 365. Um, that's one of the, the things I scream from the rooftops is medicine doesn't happen between 8 and 4.30. You had a conversation with her that I've never had with my, my providers before, <laughs> you know. Well, so, you know, and then this is where this program is a throwback to the olden days where your physician didn't see you like we do today. Your doctor would come to your house in the horse and buggy or in the car when they needed something but a lot of treatment and especially preventative stuff can be addressed by seeing how you live if i come to your house and and i'm talking about nutrition and perhaps you have boxes that i recognize from food pantries then i'm really not going to be gaining any ground by saying oh we'll buy this kind of lettuce and buy this and this and this when i see that you are in a position where you really can't do that. The other part of that is if you're pregnant, you generally will see a different provider, you know, or two or three different providers during that journey. So they know you, but they don't know you. I get to see these folks twice a month at least. 
um, through the entire pregnancy until the end. Now, if they have a complicating factor, a lot of times it's every week. So we really become interwoven into the fabric of each other's lives. I know their children. They know my children by... Indiana's infant and maternal mortality rates were rivaling that in certain areas of third world countries. Project Swaddle is the brainchild of Crawfordsville's current fire chief, Paul Miller. It came about out of need. We were seeing our run volumes drastically increase, almost doubling in some points, and there's not a lot of resources or options we had at that point. It was you call, we haul. The project came about to address the OB desert that was created in Montgomery County, where Crawfordsville is, when the local hospital closed their OB unit. 2011 is when they closed it. It was quite a shock to everyone. So it created an OB desert for us, and then we started looking at other health issues affecting care. Um, We had 25% of women smoking during their pregnancies. I really wanted to know why the local hospital, Franciscan Health, decided to close in the face of creating this desert. Unfortunately, I didn't receive an answer from them, but I did ask everyone I spoke with if they knew why. I even asked the current mayor of Crawfordsville, Todd Barton. That's a good question. Uh, You know, I think it's just a reality that the, the consumer preference had changed. I mean, obviously healthcare systems make decisions based on dollars, but what they were seeing here was that consumers weren't utilizing it in very high numbers. So the people who were utilizing maybe were the lower payers, maybe Medicaid patients. The county really didn't become aware of the gap in maternal care until 2017, when it conducted a community needs assessment. I just don't know that anyone had really kind of put those two together and looked at those to say, oh my, oh my, we have a problem. This is where Chief Miller picked up the pieces and started reassembling. Darren had already been moving toward working in public health through the fire department, which happens more often than I ever knew. He had been putting hours in at the ER as a paramedic when Chief Miller asked him to switch gears. And then as I started doing this, I started realizing that, uh, you know, one of the things that we identified also was lack of prenatal care. It wasn't necessarily that it wasn't there. It was people weren't going to prenatal visits. And so one of the tasks that Chief Miller put with me was figure out why. Um, It took me all of about a month to figure out that it's it's multifaceted, multi-pronged. So maybe you have a family, a working family that has one car. The working partner has to be at work. They don't have the car during the day to go to an appointment. Maybe the car broke down. Sometimes it is we have enough gas for X number of visits to town. People living in rural places, where many of these OB deserts predominate, have myriad obstacles to overcome just to see a doctor. And it goes beyond just a lack of providers and resources. I spoke with another person who is heavily invested in Project Swaddle and who has been observing the progress. I'm Dr. Laura Schwab-Reese. I am an assistant professor in public health at Purdue University. Many rural areas are facing four stressors. There is financial instability and insecurity. Historically, in rural communities, there were very strong social networks um, that were protective. I think we're starting to see some of that break down. 
Um, I think that the lack of infrastructure starts to become a problem in rural areas. So things like access to transportation, public transit tends to be either poor or non-existent in rural areas. Um, and I think the fourth is stable, happy families. So that starts to tie into the other three where we're in a situation now in rural areas where parents are having to work one or two or three or however many jobs and that makes it more difficult. Not that they care any less about their children, but it makes it more difficult to provide that safe, nurturing environment. We start to see diseases of despair where people feel less secure, they feel less hopeful for the future, they don't feel like society cares about them anymore. And we see these you know, negative coping strategies come as a result of that. Substance use, overusing alcohol, not caring for their body, not exercising enough, not eating nutritious food. And, and we start to see this kind of spiral where people do things that feel good in the moment. Using alcohol feels good in the moment. Using drugs feels good in the moment. Having really fatty, unhealthy food feels good in the moment. But that starts to create cycles where then you're you feel even worse in your body, even worse mentally, and you do things that aren't healthy for you or for anyone. Things like um, hurting your partner, hurting your children. When diseases of despair are confronted by the American healthcare system, despair seems to have the upper hand. In the American healthcare system, people generally have to pay to be seen. You know, you go to your doctor, you have insurance and you have to pay a copay or you have to meet your deductible. And, and so there becomes that connection to insurance where insurance providers need to see certain things in order to approve the claim. And it gets into this very messy tangle of who's paying, how much can you do in a visit, complicated kind of spaghetti bowl of who has their hands in these decisions. We made a visit to another patient, two actually, at their home in Crawfordsville. This program is amazing. Yeah. I learned so much. She and her baby live with her mother. They told me that she was integrated into the program because Bridget, the new mother, has a history of mental illness and diabetes. With my ADHD, my undiagnosed autism, and depression, anxiety, agoraphobia. I actually had a, a small breakdown shortly after having her. Mom was feeding her in the kitchen. It just, it came to the realization that she's gonna die one day. I apparently just could not handle that and I just started, it just, I had a breakdown. I just, four days. I was, I was, I was not okay for four days. For Bridget, Having Darren and the nurse from Project Swaddle talk her through this was a necessity, but it's not the kind of treatment that you'd typically get in a doctor's office. This is part of the magic of this program. It's dependent on this one guy recognizing what's going on in the home and taking action right then and there with the patient. I have gone literally under bridges to find people and take them to their appointments. 
When we come back, we'll hear how well Darren fits into a maternal care community that doesn't exactly look like him. And we'll learn how it really took a perfect storm to make this all happen. Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities. An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. As you're listening to this episode, if you find yourself wanting to share your own experience, thoughts, and feelings, we invite you to like and follow us on Facebook. There you can interact and connect with our host and other listeners, see visual companions for each episode, and discover related content to expand your understanding of women's healthcare access in rural America. Join the conversation at Middle of Everywhere Pod on Facebook. Welcome back. By this point in the episode, I think you have a pretty good idea about how nimble this program can be in ways that fly in the face of sluggish healthcare systems. But something I haven't stressed much is Darren's absolutely perfect fit for this role, which is kind of a requirement. So as you become a little bit uh, more senior in the fire department, you realize pretty quick that it's a bit of a young man's game. My avenue was to get a lot of different education and become more of that utility guy that could do a little bit of everything. I needed to become breastfeeding cognizant. So I took a breastfeeding class through the state. So I show up in my fireman's outfit and this burly guy walks into a breastfeeding class. And I had about 40 pairs of eyes kind of looking at me like, are you in the wrong place? Are you a pervert? What's, what's going on? I noticed that a couple of girls that were looking at the mannequins up front had kind of stepped in front of the mannequins. It's something I encountered when I first learned about this program. People would say every community needs their own Darren. Uh, Chief Miller calls me a unicorn. Um, I think a lot of what made this go from the initial concept to, to fruition was I've, I've been entrenched in this community for a long time, so I know a lot of people. And so I can pick up a phone and somebody's going to answer my call. I have been in healthcare both on the 911 side, the hospital side. I speak hospital, I speak administrative, I speak fire, I speak, um, I really don't know the right social way to say it, I can speak street. But I was also struck in our era of Me Too and lots of dialogue about toxic male doctors providing subpar health care for women, how Darren moved in and out of mothers' lives with such ease. He's this gruff-looking guy with no resemblance to a medical practitioner talking about vaginal discharge, and none of these women batted an eye at that. One of the things I tell him in the first visit, the very first visit, is this is an adult world. We're going to talk about penises, vaginas, breasts, pee, and poop. I'm a poop expert. I think part of it is I'm a bit of an older guy, so I don't, I'm not seen as a threat. I was, I guess I'll say a little bit suspicious. Dr. Schwab Reese again. What I came around to after talking with several of the Project Swaddle Moms is that it seemed like it was helpful that he was a man because there was a little bit less of the mom's here to scare me 
I mean, so much of their interaction with other women was negative around the pregnancy and it was scary and, and all of that, that having Darren as a man eliminated some of that like peer pressure. Um, I think he also became in, in some ways like a trusted father figure. Now, I don't know that I would ever have preferred a male to a female provider for my pregnancies. But this comment got me thinking about how some of the experiences of Darren's patients are sometimes rooted in hearsay and false information from other women who've been through pregnancy and childbirth. When you have questions and you lack access to medical doctors, who's the next person you're going to ask? What's also interesting to think about here is if paramedicine continues to come out of fire departments, it may continue to be very male-dominated. Disproportionately, many, many times more paramedics and firefighters are men than are women. This all makes me wonder if this is an untapped resource for getting women into community service roles outside of administrative offices. In any case, it's all about the person at the center of this action. Probably what becomes more important than gender is you hype the right person in the role. Now, if you get into some of the diversity kind of discussions, um, quite frankly, uh, you know, I don't know that I could walk into to the middle of a metropolitan Latino community and be accepted. Hearing Darren say this gave me pause. To be fair, Montgomery County is 96% white, so he probably has a point. But I don't know how to feel about a model of care that works within and maintains social segregation. It's like this very progressive program functions within existing conservative social structures. But if this is what the well-connected guy looks like in your community, then you better take him. And with this thought, it was suddenly clear to me how and why this all worked. This whole program is about individuals trusting each other because of a shared history. It's one of the boons of living in small-town America we've always heralded. We are interwoven and invested in each other. But in towns across America, would this model truly serve everyone? Even those who don't neatly fit into the community? It took the city and county some time to come around to designing Project Swaddle. The city tried out several other avenues with outside organizations before trying to tackle the problem themselves. And at some point it settled over to the fire department because, honestly, if you don't know what to do, who do you call? (laughs) Ghostbusters, I mean. Yeah, them too. (laughs) Well, oddly enough, they had their first office in an old fire department. There you go. I think there's something to that. (laughs) Don't put that in the podcast. What makes this all possible is a new model of healthcare. It's actually in its infancy. Community paramedicine um, was born out of the nursing shortage. And we had these folks that needed some home health care and things like that, and there weren't enough nurses. And somebody came up with the idea, hey, we have paramedics that are used to going into houses anyway. We have some that have this tertiary experience. How about we use them? This is where the unexpected pipeline from fire department to care provider has developed. 
Montgomery County was really at the beginning of developing those innovative community paramedicine programs. I think that in some ways the state has been inspired by Paul and, and his team's really innovative work. You need to build the team before you turn the lights on. Before you see your first patient, you need to have all of these ducks in a row. Uh, otherwise, you're going to set yourself up to fail. And all too often, you end up, just by the nature of the beast, putting the cart before the horse, and things fail because you don't have the right infrastructure in place. A lot of the fire departments uh, will come here and say, all right, how do we do it? How did you guys start? And my, my standard advice to them is find somebody that speaks hospital. Well, we don't know me at the hospital. Find one of your firemen that's married to one of the nurses because that's kind of a thing. And that nurse can connect you with the next nurse up the list who can connect you with the next up through administration. And before you know it, you'll have the connection you need, that, that warm handoff uh, connection that you need. Every one of the people involved in this program described its inception as a perfect storm. There were so many factors that needed to come together in the same moment for the birth of Project Swaddle, from the data that revealed the poor maternal-fetal outcomes, to the fire chief's visionary nature, to the town's buy-in through the mayor's office, to Darren being ready, willing, and capable to take this on. Everything and everyone had fallen into place. You know, most communities don't have the levels of cooperation, and that's what stands in the way. Mayor Barton again. Even if they had a Darren, you know, making it work is very difficult in a lot of communities because everybody has their turf and everybody has their little area that they want to protect, and they won't tear down those barriers and have real conversations. See, and I think that's one of the things that makes us so successful. So our connections, I mean, it's a, it's a real relationship. I think we are all friends in this, and we see each other's success, and we try to build each other up. Since its inception, Project Swaddle has continued to grow. They've gotten more grants through government dollars and private foundations, which has allowed them to hire more staff, which has increased their ability to organize and disseminate information to other communities who might want to build something like this. Fortunately for us, again, a perfect storm, we received a grant for our QRT, which is the quick response team. Which allowed them to start to collate their data and create a how-to map. So had you not gotten that grant, would this program remain sustainable for you? It would, but we wouldn't be talking right now. The last part of the equation for any evidence-based medical practice is to collect the data and prove the evidence shows its efficacy. This is why I spent so much time talking to Dr. Laura Schraubrice. She heard Chief Miller speak at Purdue, and she's like, hey, I think I might want to be involved with that. So again, one of those perfect storms. I hadn't seen anything like Project Swaddle that used community paramedics. But what I thought was particularly appealing to me about the program was the use of paramedics. Paramedics in general tend to be pretty trusted members of their communities. So if the police show up at your door, you're probably not thinking you're having a good day. If a public health tracker, and, and by that I mean like the people doing COVID-related tracking, shows up at your door, you don't think you're having a good day. But when a paramedic shows up, there's kind of an immediate level of trust. 
Dr. Schwab Reese is invested in understanding what makes for good public health in rural areas. That's really the foundation of my research, that people need a safe, happy, healthy place to live in order to be healthy. It seems like an obvious point to make, but the problem comes in with how healthcare is implemented. Data on public health comes in through reporting from hospitals and clinics to agencies like the CDC, and that data is broad and generalized. Furthermore, they can really only collect data that reports poor health outcomes because that's when people go to the hospital. So it's hard to know why there might be a decrease in hospital visitations, illness, or death. What we end up with in these death-based surveillance systems is basically all the terrible things that happen. We don't know about the, the good things that happen that tweak the path that that person was on. As a result of the Community Needs Assessment, Project Swaddle was born, but they're not able to, in a, in a structured way, say, and because of Project Swaddle, now it's not a problem anymore. So I think that tends to be a problem in public health and maybe medicine as a whole. The, the lack of data means that we can't say things like Project Swaddle prevented X number of preterm births. We can't say X number of babies lived because of Project Swaddle. Um, what we can say is that people really like the program. People believe that their lives are better because of the program. There are ways of getting this positive outcomes data but it's very expensive because it requires people going out into the field, going from patient to patient and collecting the data firsthand. In a world where there are never enough dollars for public health, using resources very efficiently becomes important. So this might be a tricky question, but does this mean this lack of evaluation from the project, does this mean that it's hypothetically a positive program, even though so many other communities are trying to figure out how to model their own programs out of this? I was afraid you were going to ask me that. Yes, we have no clear data that says that Project Swaddle is effective. It gives me heartburn. It is one of my gravest concerns about community paramedicine that we are not effectively evaluating these programs and people like what they see in the program. And so we're running with it in a way that there are millions and millions of dollars being spent on these programs that we don't know are really effective. But I believe in this program. I might be feeling audacious after everything I've learned, but I wonder if this new model of care, one that doesn't happen at a doctor's office, has no connection to insurance companies, and seems to address the physical and mental health of needy patients, might be a common sense option for a lot of communities that just can't yet conceive of it. Community paramedicine programs have been popping up around the globe, trying to address the opioid epidemic, chronic diseases like diabetes, and the many diseases of despair that plague so many rural communities. 
so much about health is so siloed and, and fragmented in the United States that everyone's kind of pulling their own system in the way that they think is best, but not necessarily pulling in a way that collectively we have the most or the best impact. If I could wave a magic wand, that is the magic wand that I would wave. I've thought about whether this type of model needed to come out of a small, sort of more rural community just because people in those communities are actually used to serving multiple roles more often than people in big metropolitan areas. And they just know each other a little bit better. They're not needles in haystacks. And I don't know, there's something really curious about that. that like in, you said, Indianapolis is modeling a program after well, they're working towards it. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. You should feel proud about that. You know, I'm humbled. I'm absolutely humbled. Honestly, I'm humbled. Um, I think you're exactly right. Uh, rural community is where this uh, this couldn't have probably happened in a, in a metropolitan area. It really couldn't. Out in the country here, we help each other. Who do you think will take over for you? And how much longer do you want to do this for? Wow. Uh, probably the toughest question you've had. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the end game is. You know, right now we have a couple of nurses that could take over just fine um, to have another paramedic, which, you know, selfishly, I want another paramedic. Um, I don't know. I don't know who that's going to be because I, I didn't know it was me. And I'm quite certain that the next person doesn't know it's them yet either. Thank you to Darren and his team for giving me the time and bringing me along for the ride. Thank you especially to Samantha Swearington for responding quickly to every email request, answering my plethora of questions, and to Abigail Campbell for recording several of my interviews. This episode was produced by me, Ariel Lavery. Our editor is Josh Adair. Thank you to Annie Davis, our intern, for helping with all the fact-checking and sending on our newsletter this season, which, if you aren't getting it, you can subscribe on middleofeverywherepod.org. You can find images of Darren and his patients on Instagram and Facebook at Middle of Everywhere Pod and Twitter at Rural underscore Stories. Our theme music was composed and produced by Time on the String Sound Studio in Paducah, Kentucky. Other scoring comes from APM Music. This is a production of WKMS and PRX. This program was made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private organization funded by the American people.